This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Like many hundreds of other people, Jason Ball's been active in recent weeks encouraging young people to get on the electoral roll ahead of the possible possible postal survey on marriage equality. Uh, Jason has been on this station a number of times before. He's the 2017 Young Australian of the Year for Victoria and an LGBTI advocate who works in schools and across the community. And it's really great to have you back on Triple R, Jason. And I imagine you've been pretty flat out. Um, what what did you think when you heard that uh, at least 90,000 extra people have put their name on the roll in recent weeks? Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. And that, that statistic was incredibly uplifting. I think a lot of people in the LGBTI community were really hurting on the, the, the feeling of what's going to be coming for us with a potential postal survey or plebiscite, um, you know, kind of putting the question of our basic human rights and dignity up for a public vote. Um, which no other community has ever been subjected to in Australia's history. And we know that it will open up a whole bunch of fear and misinformation from people who want to turn the tide of public opinion. And that will have a really damaging cost. But the fact that our younger generation have mobilised in the way that they have to either update their address details or to enrol for the first time, um, many of them 18, 19-year-olds, uh, is a really uplifting sign that, you know, Australia is very much ready for this change. And I think our coalition government have absolutely underestimated um, just how much Gen Y want this change. And I, I think um, I, I heard you say or, or read um, something you'd written that, that uh, people should not underestimate your generation. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more because I suppose there is a sense that, that um, you know, people have been thinking that young people won't vote in, if, we, if, the, if it is put to a survey, that young people won't be participating in high enough numbers, but um, it looks like they, they might be. Yeah, I think the mood or possibly how the coalition government read the Australian population was maybe that a postal survey would disenfranchise young people. Maybe young people don't know how to use the post. Um, You know, maybe young people aren't motivated enough to actually get out and vote if it's a voluntary vote. And I think they've gotten that horribly wrong. I think they have no idea just how much the younger generation today want to see marriage equality. We have grown up in a time where this is much more visible. We can't see what the big deal is. We have friends who are gay. We see gay people on TV. We just can't understand why marriage can't be expanded to include LGBTI people. And I think that when you look at the 20,000 people who showed up for Equal Loves Rally in Melbourne over the weekend or the million people who have gone and updated their details so that they can have their say and send a resounding, you know, yes vote to our government, um, you know, that is something that I think will come back to bite the coalition. I think a lot of the people who are being added onto the electoral roll right now are not people who would probably vote for the coalition come next election, especially because it's left a very sour taste in enough that they would force this public vote on the Australian people when really all we need is just Parliament to do its job and vote as they do on every other issue. Um, I think that it's also important to know that, you know, we we can't be complacent. Um, Complacency is what led to Brexit. It's what led to Trump in the United States. This is a voluntary vote. So if the yes vote doesn't turn out, we won't win that vote. And we need to win that vote, not because it's necessary for us to change the law. The whole thing is a pointless exercise. We know we don't need a public vote in order to change the Marriage Act. We need a parliamentary vote. But it is going to send a really important message to 
particularly young LGBTI people who might be struggling to come to terms with who they are, but that they're loved, that they're appreciated and that Australians believe that they deserve to be treated equally under the law. And I know uh, a lot of friends of mine, Jason, um, particularly those who are part of the LGBTI community, have been really um, concerned about what might be unleashed by this postal survey. And it's kind of easy to get, I think, really um, depressed about the fact that, you know, we're having this um, this survey in the first place for what is essentially a human rights issue. But uh, you do a lot of work with um, with young people and also young people who don't... Uh, aren't of, of the age that they can vote at schools and sporting clubs and so on. And I was really, I found it really affirming to see uh, on your social media pages over the past couple of weeks um, the story of, of someone at a primary school who came out in front of their peers and received a, a standing ovation. I wonder what your, your sense is of those um, young people at the kind of the primary school age about, about this issue. Do they see it as, as an issue at all? Well, I think when you're talking about you know, kids at primary school, uh, a lot of the fear that is pumped out there is that these people are too young to have conversations about sexuality or gender identity, when the reality is a lot of kids in primary school have same-sex parents. Um, a lot of kids in primary school these days are coming to terms with their gender identity and might be transitioning socially when they're at primary school. So this is not an issue that is solely within the realm of high school kids. Um, you can tell a young person that it's okay to be gay. You know, your friend Jimmy has two mums or two dads and that's okay. That's the extent of the conversation. Um, or it might be a young person who is transgender and, and this is happening um, in younger and younger years these days um, as this becomes more acceptable. But I think for me, one of the most heartwarming things that I have seen has been young people feeling the confidence these days to come out to their peers uh, at high school and not just to their close friends or the teachers that they know, but at whole school assemblies. We have seen that at Melbourne Grammar this year. This is, you know, an all-boys conservative religious school who, when the vice-captain of the school got up and came out to his entire school, he was received with a standing ovation and the first football team held a pride game um, and they painted their 50-metre line in a rainbow, the international symbol of gay pride. You know, this is something that I think people in the LGBTI community could never have imagined, but it's here and, you know, it is absolutely amazing to see those young people who have the courage and the bravery to do that are going to leave behind a legacy for other young people at their school who are going to feel a bit more comfortable within their own skin, who are going to feel more comfortable to come out and, and not feel like they're going to have to hide who they are throughout their schooling experience. What do you think, Jason, is the role of schools um, as this uh, debate happens across the community? Uh, I know um, people are, are talking about this, like what, should schools take a stand at all? How can they best support the young people within their school community? Do you have a, a view on that? Well, I think regardless of whether it's because the postal survey is happening or just in general, a school has to be a place that every student feels safe, welcome and accepted to be who they are. And it doesn't matter whether they're straight or gay or black or white, you know, what their cultural background or their religion is, every student deserves to be supported at school. And this has become increasingly apparent over the last few years with, say, the rollout of the Safe Schools Coalition, that LGBTI young people are probably faring the worst um, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to feeling supported in school. 
instances of homophobia and transphobia happen more at school than in any other setting in a young person's life, as the research has shown us. And so that means it is the responsibility of a school to, say, take a no-tolerance approach to homophobia and the use of homophobic language, but not just taking a stand against homophobia, but also being visible and proactive about supporting diversity when it comes to sexuality and gender identity. And that can be things like getting involved with Wear It Purple Day, which was last Friday, which is about showing support for rainbow youth and taking a stand against bullying. Um, or it can be things like having a pride game, you know, within the football club, or it can be having an assembly themed around pride and diversity, where you create a platform where young people can get up, um, potentially come out, or at least affirm their support as allies to the LGBTI mate. And I mean, your advocacy, particularly in, in football over the past few years, has led to really significant change at the level of the, the AFL and also many sporting clubs around the country. Does that give you um, a, a real sense of optimism, I guess, that, uh, you know, we will have same-sex marriage uh, legalised here in Australia and that uh, it's not so much of an issue as, as it was, um, you know, even a decade ago? Yeah, I think it's a really good temperature check and I think it does show how out of touch our current crop of politicians are on this issue. I mean, we have the AFL taking a leadership role on this. We have country football clubs in Hamilton and Gippsland taking a leadership role on this. You know, this is not insignificant. These are the places where LGBTI people felt, felt the least welcome and the least included, and was probably the biggest bastion for homophobia once upon a time. But they have now taken up the baton and said, you know what, we've been part of the problem for a long time. We're now going to be part of the solution. And so we have seen the Pride game at the AFL level played between Sydney and St Kilda. This year it was hosted by Sydney at the, at the SCG, and there were some amazing stories shared um, in the lead-up to that by you know LGBTI supporters of AFL and even you know players and relatives of, of players talking about their stories, which really humanised it. And not only at the AFL level, but also at the grassroots. You know, we saw Hamilton, Yarra Glen, Gippsland um, hosting a Pride Cup this year. And for the first time in the Metro Football League, the Southern Football Netball League had the first ever Pride round where 20 football grounds across eight different council areas were painted in rainbow 50 metre lines as a way to say that, you know what, it doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight, you're welcome within football. And, and that's a message of acceptance and understanding coming from a place where historically we've accepted, expected at the least, which is what makes it so powerful. Uh, Jason Ball's with us. Uh, he's a marriage equality advocate and also um, advocate for the LGBTI community and, and this year's um, Victorian Australian of the Year. That's always, I get confused how to say that. Hang on, a young Australian <laughs> of the Year for Victoria. Anyway, that's what you are and um, you're doing lots of work with that as well. But uh, um, before we let you go, I wonder, I mean, if you've got a response, I suppose, to what's happening at the, the federal level and, and actually within the Liberal Party, I know that um, Lord Mayor Robert Doyle's part of a new marriage equality campaign within the Liberal Party, pushing for a, a, a yes vote and whether, uh, you know, this kind of movement is going to, to uh, uh, get the yes vote over the line, do you think? I think it will be required for us to get the yes vote over the line is we will need the people within the Liberal Party who support marriage equality to come out and be vocal about it. We will need Christians and people of faith who support marriage equality and believe that all love is equal to come out and be vocal about that. We know that the majority of Christians and the majority of Liberal voters 
support marriage equality and so we need them to be vocal and visible um, over the next couple of months so you know even though I don't identify with the Liberal Party I'm all power to those people within the party who support this change because we will need their help and their support in order for us to get over the line. Thanks for being with us and uh, no doubt we'll touch base with you again in coming weeks and uh, uh, if we can catch you that is because I bet you're going to be flat out (laughs) football season and everything as well as this. Um, Thanks Jason. Uh, anytime. Thanks for having me. And uh, you may have read over the past week that large-scale protests have erupted in the Philippines in response to the killing of a 17-year-old boy, uh, allegedly by police in Manila, as part of President Duterte's war on drugs. The death came more than a year into the president's reign, and a key feature of which has been his heavy-handed crackdown on people suspected of being drug users and traffickers. This has led to many thousands of people killed. Some estimates are as high as 13,000, and has drawn condemnation from human rights groups and some foreign governments. This week also saw the head of Australia's international spy agency ASIS, Nick Warner, criticised for appearing in a photograph in a fist pump gesture with the controversial leader. To talk about all that is currently happening uh, over in the Philippines, we've invited Ronald Holmes to come on the show. He's an assistant professor of political science at De La Salle University, Manila, and president of Pulse Asia, and he joins us today on the line from Canberra. Welcome, Ronald. Um, good morning, Billin. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning. And we, we uh, until this year, haven't really spoken about the Philippines that much on the, on this station. And uh, the protest and also, um, as Dylan explained, um, the interaction between our spy chief and the president last week has really got people in Australia talking more about the Philippines. I wonder if mm. you can tell us a little bit more about the sense on the ground in the Philippines, whether the president has the same amount of support that he did when he was elected. I, I, well, based on the public opinion polls, we see that the level of support has not changed. At least um, if we go back to the public opinion polls that were done in early June, uh, this is expected. We've seen presidents in the past retaining their approval despite controversies, at least for one year. Um, but I don't know whether this can be retained given what has happened more recently. Uh, specifically the uh, murder of this 17-year-old kid who was allegedly involved in uh, peddling illegal drugs. And people, more people are speaking out now than and than had before. And but I mean, you've you've um, when you've polled and 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 surveyed people, you found that the support for Duterte has been across the community. It hasn't just been one group, has it? Yeah, it's, it cuts across uh, socioeconomic classes. It cuts across uh, areas. We've seen support for the campaign against drugs, but we've also noted that there are a, a good number, actually a significant majority, are concerned that they themselves or some people that they know might be victimized by what is referred to as extrajudicial killings. And so, I mean, one thing that that I know has confounded people is that uh, President Duterte has maintained such uh, popular support throughout um, his uh, presidency, which has lasted a little bit more than a year thus far. Mm. How do we begin to account for that? Are there other things that he's doing and that he's tapping into that mean people are kind of on board with his broader agenda? I think he has basically... from the time that he was campaigning for the presidency up to the past year that he has assumed the position, he has made it clear that he is after securing the safety of uh, ordinary Filipinos. Uh, What has happened is that um, he has not been held personally accountable 
for deaths that are um, committed or uh, killings that have been committed by unidentified assailants or what the critics would say are extrajudicial killings despite statements that he has made which he says he was saying in jest so until such time that it really he will be held accountable for these uh, killings I I don't think that the people have really it has a, people have recognized that he's the person that should be held accountable. Yes, I understand. And I wonder um, that his lack of compassion when the 17-year-old student um, became one of those that, that has been killed um, through this, this um, so-called war on, war on drugs will be a catalyst for a change in public opinion. Actually, Kalia, what he did was that he shifted gears soon after the, it was proven that the 17-year-old kid was actually already handcuffed and uh, it was impossible for the kid to actually fight the police. The Duterte came out with a statement saying that um, he would really make sure that this policeman would be held accountable. It's a reversal from his earlier statements uh, where he said that, you know, he would definitely defend the police regardless of what means they will use in the campaign against drugs. So we've seen a basically a 180 degree turn on the part of the president, maybe as a way to assuage uh, the outrage or try to temper the outrage that has come out because of this recent incident. Is that because he's facing more uh, serious opposition as a result of this very public death? Well, uh, that that is the um, this in uh, I think wish of many groups that you know that the opposition against this uh, this policy that has proven to be ineffective. Uh, it's really a policy. The drug campaign has really tried to conflict the man, but alongside it, there was this recent revelation that there were about six hundred. 6.4 billion pesos worth of illegal drugs that were illegally imported from China. And government seems not to be as attentive to the importation of illegal drugs compared to, let's say, the campaign against petty peddlers. So um, hopefully it will bring about a change in terms of the approach in combating a problem. It's a serious problem, but the approach has really not netted any uh, any positive outcome and has led to this uh, unfortunate deaths that we've seen over the past year. And, and I mean, dis- despite the, the strength of the, the rhetoric and uh, Duterte's campaign against drug users and traffickers, as I understand it, drug use in the Philippines is actually quite low on an international scale. It, it is. Um, basically, I think the comparative statistics would suggest that if you look at the Philippine, uh, the use and the proliferation of illegal drugs, it's not at the scale that you see in other countries that are considered really affected by narco-politics. Uh, even the figures cited by the Duterte are found to be bloated. No? There was one, one time where an actual official of the Drug Enforcement Agency quoted a lower figure. Uh, unfortunately for that uh, drug enforcement official, his figure was contradicting the president's figure and he was eventually dismissed from office. Uh, we don't know exactly what the basis of the Duterte's higher figure. He says that there are about 3 million drug dependents in the country. But the last that I checked was that it was less than about 1.6 million for population, adult population of about 55 million. That's a 
low um, proportion. We're speaking small proportion. Mm. Uh, Ronald Holmes is with us. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at De La Salle University in Manila. And we're speaking about uh, well, the Philippines and um, the political situation there and the war on drugs uh, and uh, the, the president's reaction to uh, the murder of a 17-year-old student that has taken place recently. And I wonder, I mean, at, at the same time as, as this is happening, uh, there is uh, a lot of talk about terrorism and the Philippines and our uh, ASIS uh, spy chief, the director, General Nick Warner was over meeting with um, President Duterte and uh, really a, a photograph circled with him doing the kind of fist pump gesture with the president and I wonder what your response to that was because many human rights advocates and others were quite shocked to see that photograph. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it really will spawn a lot of criticism especially since you know that particular sign of a fist pump is something that is associated with the president's campaign, uh, all-out campaign against drugs and criminality. Um, I doubt, I mean, I I know, for example, in the Philippines that many public officials tend to shy away from having to follow that particular symbol. So, uh, I mean, it's understandable that, you know, this uh, meeting between the spy chief Warner uh, and and the third day that 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 particular sign would draw controversy. And to what extent, I guess, more broadly, have Duterte's actions uh, impacted on international diplomacy and relation and Philippines' relationships with other governments? Because, of course, he came out and has made um, you know very strong comments against former U.S. President Barack Obama, mm -hmm. for example, and other foreign leaders as well. But we see now Australia's uh, top international spy chief over there, and as I understand it, the U.S. is lending support to assist the Philippines to fight ISIS in Marawi. So, is it? kind of, I guess, business as usual in some respects, even though there are some foreign leaders criticising Duterte for his very strong crackdown on uh, civilians? I think there's some form of a split in, in so far as a, a difference in so far as the rhetoric. Duterte has come out challenging or counter-criticising the US because of his criticism on human rights violations allegedly committed by his administration. But at the same time, the U.S. cannot just simply withdraw support for, let's say, anti-terrorism campaign. In Malawi, what happened was that the United States provided some form of technical assistance uh, uh, that would uh, provide support for the armed forces in, that, in their campaign against the Maote group. Um, you also see, for example, in the South China Sea, continuous presence of the United States and even monitoring on the part of the allies of the U.S. and the Philippines like Japan. So there has not been a significant shift in so far as the security alliances, but there have been um, troubling developments, uh, more specifically the way that the Philippines would uh, assert the decision on the part of the arbitral tribunal on the case that we filed against China uh, with regard to the South China Sea. And the location of the Philippines really does put it in, in, in some ways in, in quite a, you know, at least geographically, in a quite a central position in a lot of these kind of geopolitical discussions that we're seeing happening. I wonder how you see that will play out. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess that the, look, the location as well as the um, opportunities that um, 
are provided for some groups. No? Um, I remember in the case of, let's say, uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups, there was one report that came out that the Philippines has really been an ideal location for and were uh, leaders of some terrorist organizations that are not necessarily linked with one another can effectively network. Uh, this has transpired even before 9-11 and it has been reported that you know, certain areas in Mindanao are uh, areas where many fundamentalist uh, lead, leaders of fundamentalist groups coming from other South Asian countries have sought safe refuge. Uh, so I think that's a concern for most of the groups and allies of the country, and that's the reason why there should be more cooperation among intelli- among these intelligence agencies. And, and then to, c- to circle back to um, where we started this conversation about the, um, the public opinion in the Philippines, is... Uh, President Duterte seen as the right person to have as president at a time when terrorism is something that uh, the Philippines needs to be dealing with? Um, It's also a question of how much people are concerned about terrorism. One of the things that we've noticed in terms of public opinion in the Philippines across the years is that, you know, you've got gut issues becoming more, that are more prominent, issues related to pay, issues related to prices of basic commodities. So the material issues are the more urgent issues that government, that people think government should attend to. What is uh, the situation right now, fortunately for the third is that the economic situation has been good. It's something that he has inherited from the past administration. Unless there's a downturn, uh, we don't expect to see a sudden withdrawal until such time, of course, that it's it's quite clear that the territory should be held accountable for all of these deaths that have happened over the past year. Yeah, it's an issue we um, we don't have as much insight as we should have into here in Australia. And Ronald, we uh, very much thank you for sharing your insights with us today on Triple R. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Earlier this month, Victoria Legal Aid brought a case in the Supreme Court to test how and under what circumstances electroconvulsive therapy can be used to treat mental health disorders. As the law currently stands, patients may be forced into shock therapy if it's deemed that they don't have the capacity to give consent or that there's no less restrictive treatment available. The case opens up a range of questions in relation to when one's right to refuse treatment can be overridden and the availability of legal assistance for those experiencing mental health issues. Hamish McLaughlin is a senior lawyer at Victoria Legal Aid and one of those involved in the case and he joins us today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. So I think uh, at the outset it'd be great to get a sense of uh, how ECT or electroconvulsive therapy is currently administered today because people might have um, pretty, I guess, negative ideas and connotations that are attached to that therapy as it's been used in kind of horror movies and the like in the past. How is it actually used and how widely is it used today? Um, Well... Dylan, your listeners might be quite uh, surprised to hear how widely it's used. So the latest figures we have is that around 2,000 people get it each year. Uh, That's about 60% in the public health system and 40% in the private health system. So those people in the private system are consenting to it and choosing to get it. Um, Of the people in the public uh, system, again, some people will consent to get it, but the majority would be getting it um, involuntarily, so against their will. Uh, And uh, there's about 700 hearings per year. 
to determine whether people should be able to get it uh, compulsorily. Uh, so that's kind of the um, uh, how broadly it's done. In terms of how what it actually involves, it involves being given an anaesthetic, so you're um, made unconscious, and then some electrodes are placed on your uh, temples, uh, and then some electrical uh, signal essentially is put through your brain, which causes a brief seizure in the brain. And uh, that, um, it's observed, has an effect for some people in terms of improving their mental state. Uh, one of the interesting things is the psychiatrists don't know how or why the seizure will actually improve people's mental state, but um, they observe that it does. Mm. And some people submit to it voluntarily because they, they see a benefit that can be achieved from it? Yes, that's right. And you've, um, you've got a, a couple of people that have gone to Supreme Court, the cases, so um, PBU and NJE, as they're known as, in the um, case. So that that was taken mid last month, or earlier this month, a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, just, so, just two weeks So maybe ago, yeah. talk about what you're challenging when you, with, with these cases. Yeah, so in both of those cases, uh, they were examples of people who were being given ECT uh, against their will. So they had a strong view that they didn't want it. Uh, and so they were taken to uh, the Mental Health Tribunal and the Mental Health Tribunal had to decide whether um, they should be given that treatment. Uh, they, in both cases, the Mental Health tri Tribunal approved it and they uh, sought review of those decisions by VCAT. Uh, and VCAT upheld the Mental Health Tribunal's decisions and so then they appealed to the Supreme Court uh, and we're appealing on uh, what are called questions of law, so whether the VCAT got the law right around when you can give uh, ECT against someone's will. Uh, and there's two really main issues in the case, uh, as Dylan said in the intro introduction, um, to give someone ECT against their will uh, the tribunal has to be satisfied of two things. First, that the person doesn't have capacity to make an informed decision themselves about whether they should have it. And secondly, if that's true, uh, then whether um, it's the least restrictive way for them to be treated. And what we're looking at in the cases is that in both cases, the tribunal found that our clients didn't have capacity to give informed consent because they didn't agree that they had a mental illness. So it's a really important issue, uh, whether just because you say that you don't agree with your diagnosis or you don't agree that um, you're having experiences that the psychiatrists regard as uh, unwell, whether that means you don't have capacity to make the decision yourself because in both of these cases, uh, the tribunal found that our clients understood what ECT was, they knew what the procedure was, uh, they had been given all the relevant information and they were able to understand it, but had decided they didn't want it. Are there precedents already for cases like this? No, this is so this is um, a test case really. So it's the first time that the Supreme Court has considered these provisions. They were just brought in in 2014. And uh, I mean, it, it sounds like it wouldn't be a, a very pleasant experience to undergo ECT. What are the, some of the, the side effects that, that people experience and, and the reasons, I guess, for, for not wanting to be subjected to it again against their will? Um, well, the main uh, 
side effect that our clients report is memory loss. So um, it can having these seizures in your brain can affect your short-term memory, uh, which, as I'm sure your listeners would understand, can be quite a frightening prospect. Uh, someone's, as our clients would say, having your memories um, is really important thing in terms of your identity going through time. So when you're being presented with a treatment that is going to remove some of those memories for however briefly or um, however few they are is a really frightening um, prospect and people often just don't want a medical procedure that's going to affect their memory. But also um, because it involves an anaesthetic, it is um, a quite invasive form of psychiatric treatment. Um, Very few other psychiatric treatments require you to undergo under general anaesthetic. Uh, so that in itself is frightening, and with any as with any anaesthetic, it does uh, carry risk whenever you go under an anaesthetic. And who, uh, in challenging it in the Supreme Court, was there a counter argument? Was that presented in court as well? Yes. So the Department of Health um, applied to intervene in the case, uh, and they um, argued that the tribunal had got the law right in those cases. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this raises, um, I think, some really uh, interesting and, and I guess alarming issues about access to legal assistance. And there's uh, some uh, one particular study that you cite uh, on the Victoria Legal Aid website that one of your colleagues undertook a study um, in, in New York and a range of other places as well, your colleague Al- Al- Eleanor Fritz. And um, I was surprised to find that in Victoria, I think it's only around 18% of people have legal representation before the mental health tribunal, but in places such as New York and in the UK as well, legal representation is much higher in similar scenarios. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it's even less for ECT hearings. So this ECT jurisdiction was brought in just in 2014. Previously, the psychiatrists could just uh, approve it. Um, But now there's around 700 of these hearings per year. Uh, and only about 8% of people are represented. And that makes um, uh, a big difference to people uh, because, as you can imagine, the client, our clients are there. They are up against a doctor or psychiatrist who's got medical training, will have appeared in many of these hearings. And we've got 92% of people at these hearings are um, expected to front them themselves and argue uh, that they have capacity to make the decisions and have to refer to legal uh, provisions. So it's very difficult uh, and frightening and there's a real power imbalance. Uh, and we also know that it makes a big difference to the outcome, whether there's a lawyer, because uh, the statistics show us that in, if you don't have a lawyer in an ECT case, 90% of the time the tribunal will approve the ECT application. However, if legal aid's there, that drops down to 50%. Yeah, that was the, actually the most um, interesting kind of fact when reading background on this before speaking with you, that that, that difference at that process. So, so the... The mental health tribunal process is there to improve the, the, I suppose, the rights available to people through this process. So it's not just an automatic, your psychiatrist says, therefore it happens. There is a review process, but does that process need to be improved by making sure that that people are represented, um, have legal represented representation at the tribunal so it's not a rubber stamp? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we think. And so there's... um One of the problems is that a lot of these hearings are really rushed on. So uh, the annual report from the Mental Health Tribunal showed that 
uh, 20% of applications are heard on the same day that they are made. So the application is put on by put in by the psychiatrist that morning. That afternoon, the person's fronting the tribunal, and fifty uh, percent, so half of them, are heard within twenty four hours. So in those circumstances, the patients really don't have time to organise a lawyer, don't have time to organise their case, prepare what they might want to say. Right, and how long do the hearings generally go for? Uh, they're each around an maybe an hour is scheduled so they might spend 45 minutes uh, with the person and then 15 minutes uh, deliberating. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Hamish McLaughlin, a senior lawyer with Victoria Legal Aid, all about a, a challenge that they're running or have run in the Supreme Court to um, the provision of uh, electroconvulsive therapy to mental health patients. And we haven't got a judgment yet um, in, in this appeal to, to VCAT's ruling. What effect would it have if, if there's a ruling that comes out in your favour? It will clarify what the law is around the area. So what we're hoping for is to get some clarity about when the tribunal should determine that someone doesn't have capacity uh, to make an informed choice. And we're arguing that um, just because someone doesn't agree with their diagnosis or doesn't agree that they have mental illness, that doesn't mean that they don't have legal capacity to make an informed choice. So we'd be hoping um, to get some clarity around that. And there's another um, question in the case about uh, even if the tribunal decides that the person doesn't have capacity, they then have to go on to decide, well, should they get the ECT? And what VCAT decided was that they can decide to approve ECT if they think it's the best way to get the patient well. Uh, we think that that's too broad and that really ECT should only be used uh, where it's necessary to prevent a serious problem, either a serious deterioration in the person's health or serious harm. And I, I suppose people listening might think, you know, this is quite a niche area of, of law, but do you see that this kind of process through the Mental Health Tribunal and um, processes similar to this have broad implications um, to all of our lives? Well, they do. And um, for a start, I mean, mental health doesn't discriminate. So um, this could happen to any of us. Um, a lot of, you know, your cli uh, my clients, um, they wouldn't have expected that they would be in this situation. So it could happen to anyone. But also the case does tap, touch on broader human rights issues that affect all of us when um, you're talking about taking away someone's legal rights to be able to make decisions uh, that uh, about what happens to their own bodies. Um, that obviously has broader implications for all of us and the court will also be considering issues about human rights and um, how they apply in general as well. And so we don't yet know exactly when, when the judgment will come, but is it expected some, some months away, maybe six months down the track? Uh, yeah, that's right. So a judge did what they say, um, what they call reserving his decision. Uh, so we don't have a date for when the decision will come out, but because it's um, a big case and an important case, it will take some time. So six months at least, I think. Yeah, thanks for letting us know about it, Hamish. Thank you for having me. Hamish McLaughlin's a uh, lawyer with Victoria Legal Aid, and you can find out a lot more information about um, that case and, uh, and, and the couple of cases that are before the Supreme Court uh, on the Victoria Legal Aid website if you want to read up on that and get some more background. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Thank you.